0: Hello, this is Alex Case. I wish to apologize in advance for some technical difficulties with the audio here. Um, we had some problems with audio submergence and that sort of other stuff. And unfortunately, we did not have enough time to fix this in order to get the episode out on time. We apologize for the inconvenience, however, we still hope you will enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I am your host, Alex Case, and once again joining me is my co-host... David Stark! Alright, so this week we are covering the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which has a few people who we'll be seeing a bunch more of in later installments, and who some and at least one person who we've seen previously. We have starring in this film, Donald Sutherland, as doctor as Matthew Bennell, not a doctor in this version. We have Brooke Adams, who will be seeing later with some David Cronenberg stuff. Jeff Goldblum, who will also be seeing in some David Cronenberg and Steven Spielberg stuff. Veronica Cartwright, who we've previously met in Alien. And Leonard Nimoy pre
1: Star Trek after. the
0: motion picture. <laughs> All yep. right. So as with our podcast on John Carpenter's the thing, um, we are taking we are kind of doing the remake before we did the original. However, there are enough general narrative similarities to a certain degree that we'll probably end up talking somewhat about the original, although I admit I haven't seen the original yet. Have you seen the original film, David?
1: No. uh, I have seen the subsequent 1993 remake, and apparently there was also just called Body Snatchers, and apparently there was another... 2007 remake called The Invasion. So apparently this is like a really popular thing to make. Which makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the people you know being replaced,
0: not being them, that is one of those really good recurring themes. Yeah, and what I think makes this film work and have the same sort of lasting degree of popularity that the original one had as well is how the roots of the paranoia and that concept can evolve with time, in sort of the same way that vampires and werewolves have lasted so long as a concept in horror, because they can be representative of so many different things. Yeah. (sighs) So, probably one of the most significant alterations from this version to the other versions of the film, uh, other adaptations comes at the very beginning where we get the origin of the creatures and how they get to Earth, where basically they're from another planet, they kind of travel by solar winds or something like that, is how it's described in both dialogue in the film and the trailer, and just kind of make it through our atmosphere with no issues. before landing and yeah. being it was, um, carried down to the Earth as rain, pretty much.
1: Yeah, there's... A the scientist in me is just like, no, solar winds do not work that way. <laughs> they go outward from a sun. So the only way that would work is if uh, these plant life forms evolved on or originated from Venus or Mercury, which are the only, and even then it would be orbital be. It could work, but but yeah, only if they came from Venus or Mercury.
0: Yeah, and um early on we're introduce to our sort of two main leads, Elizabeth Driscoll. A scientist at the San Francisco Health Department and her boss, Matthew Bennell, a health inspector played by Donald Sutherland, and Benell kind of strikes a sort of '30s hard-boiled PI look in terms of level of in terms of brown trench coat and a dry, deadpan wit, which also kind of fits because the film's set in San Francisco, which is the stopping grounds for uh, Sam Spade, and I think also um, uh, Philip
1: Marlowe. Yeah, yeah. This filming in San Francisco. Just I, I actually lived in San Francisco for a couple of years, and my first thought was, you know, after like that super heavy rainstorm, and then we get the next day, and everything's dry, and I had to call bullshit on that. I was like. Because when it rains in San Francisco, it rains a lot, and it is. It the rain doesn't usually last long. It's you know the heavy rainstorms maybe a day or two, but the rain itself will stick around. Just it is wet for
0: weeks afterwards. Yeah. So just little anecdote. It's definite. Also, it's it's definitely because this film was shot primarily on location as opposed to in sets. It definitely shows the times of the film. This is a film made in the very late 70s. And so you kind of get this glimpse of super late 70s, um, San Francisco, Hay- Hay- Ashbury has been gentrified from the... Hi- the hippies have ultimately led to the gentrification of Haydashbury. Well, some of the rougher neighborhoods like the Tenderloin are still pretty rough. In fact, the scene where we have a cameo appearance by... Um, Kevin McCarthy from the original film potentially playing his character from the original film, depending on how you look at it. The shot in the Tenderloin district. Yeah. And
1: he comes to their car, they lock the doors and roll up the
0: windows. (laughs) Uh... So... Very early on in the movie, we get our kind of our first person replaced. The boyfriend of Elizabeth Driscoll, a dentist, he is replaced by a sort of nascent pod that she found overnight and picked up a plant kind of to investigate what it was. And um, from there, she kind of, after he starts acting dramatically differently... And it's good of the film to kind of show us the before and after for Jeffrey, where we get a good look at his lifestyle, at his behavior pretty much before. So when we see the after for um, Jeffrey, it's such a night and day difference that we, that it becomes immediately, that her fears and paranoia become somewhat justified.
1: Yeah, there's. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because one of the first things we see him do is very sinisterly take out the trash. And it wasn't till much, much later in the film where we eventually find out exactly what's happened. He's just gotten rid of the original body when it collapses into that sort of ashy nastiness.
0: Yeah, and then throughout the... Film, we have this, we have the sinister undercurrent of garbage men, which are cl- which are picking up, which we cl- what we see later is that gray, ashy residue of converted people. Um. So, when this goes on, we um, Elizabeth talks to. Uh, Matthew. Matthew suggests, "Hey, let's go talk to my psychi- my pop psychiatrist buddy, uh, David Kibner, played by Leonard Nimoy, in a very interesting kind of role for him." Yeah, it just
1: <laughs> this is Leonard Nimoy, sort of differently than you've ever seen him before.
0: <laughs> this is very true. Like one of the things I, I. Picked up from listening to the Mission Log podcast is like Leonard Nimoy's pre-Star Trek career was he was actually the guy who played the heavy in a lot of movies or like 50s serials like uh, Rocket Men from Mars or whatever uh, where he'd either be like the evil Martian or he'd be a gangster who the Martians were working with because of course the Martians are working with gangsters um, that sort That's of thing and we get to the Star Trek where he's playing a more calm, logical character and then here we have Dr. Kibner who is neither of those. He is he's calm, reassuring, but but until later in the film where he gets potted he's no longer he's not that emotionless person from before. He's He is a very warm, emotional, welcoming person, but one who responds to their claims of, hey, people are being replaced by other things with a degree of skepticism.
1: Yeah, but... (laughs) Admittedly, given the, you know, pop psychiatry that he was practicing, from his point of view, it did make sense. Because he was going on... You know, on on the alienation of the individual. You know, walking down the street. You know, somewhat other people recognize each other. It's a city, of course. People are going to recognize each other.
0: It was a very interesting character. Yeah, we're also introduced to our two other significant leads: writer and poet Jack Pelichick, who. As a day job with his wife, Nancy, runs a bathhouse. It's not clear what part of San Francisco they're in, but yeah. So, and this is when we get our sort of first look at a in-mid-transition pod person, so to speak. And we get kind of a neat little bit of uh, body horror here, too. I'll probably mention through all of this. This film is shot a lot like a film noir. Lots of dark lighting in scenes, or natural lighting, but it's also, because this is a 70s film, and it's using that 70s naturalist, lots of location or guerrilla shooting film style, uh, partially for budgetary reasons, partially for to get the the reality of a location. Also you know, lots of natural lighting. And I think San Francisco kind of works well for this occasion for this because of this, because what one of the things that the director does is he basically uses San Francisco's hills and sort of geography to kind of create natural Dutch angles. Where if you're not familiar with the film term, a Dutch angle is when you turn the camera slightly on its side to make the V- the what the visuals seem off kilter and make the audience seem uneasy. If you've seen Battlefield Earth, then you've seen this technique spectacularly overused to the point of being comedic. But here, it's used very effectively. We have a we're not so much turning the ca- tilting the camera, though it th- does happen on occasion as much as just the city because it's there San Francisco, if you've ever seen pictures of it or been there, uh is a very hilly area, and just use the geography to make everything seem a little off. Um. So, uh Anywho, um after Matthew tries to get the lot, you get know, the police involved with the uh, pods. Uh, he basically gets told either not to worry or keep it to yourself, or that sort of thing. At which point, they, the four of them—Jack, Nancy, Matthew, and Elizabeth—hole up at Matthew's place, and they are nearly all of them replaced by pods. Yes,
1: the only thing that saves them is Nancy, who for some reason doesn't need to sleep in this film. Uh waking the others up when the pods are growing in their in Matthew's backyard. And it's interesting because Nancy never seems tired.
0: Um uh, up until one point in the movie, but yeah, I mean she sleeps at a couple points in the movie. She's basically rescued from getting podified in her house actually a little earlier in the movie. Uh possibly that same night. No, not the same night, but like the day before or whatever. It is entirely possible that like Oh 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 yeah, uh, no no Nancy, yeah, Nancy doesn't sleep at all, you're right. At least not on camera. Elizabeth does. Uh, nearly gets qualified. Oh, yeah. Nancy appears to be possibly downing in a, a, about as much coffee as Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street does. I don't know. It mentions later in the film that she is doing shifts with Jeff when they. not uh, Yeah, sorry, Jack so that one person sleeps while the other person keeps watch, but then Jeff. she loses track on Jack. Yeah. At this point, when the pod replacement nearly happened, this is when we kind of get the full... First time we see sort of the pod people in full effect. We get bits of this earlier in the scene with um, the Kevin McCarthy cameo appearance. When he's shouting his... when he's reprising his warning from the end of the original film, he then runs off, pursued by a whole bunch of pod people who are doing their howl before getting clobbered by a car. And here we get, like, hordes of them. Um And we're gonna get some real significant... Kind of, not super significant body horror stuff here. We're not talking, like, John Carpenter's The Thing-level body horror. But with the... uh. People in transition, kind of stuff. It's, it's hard to get that level of body horror. That's true. I mean. Um, um, so ultimately, so your Matthew and Elizabeth get separated from uh, Jack and Nancy. And then in turn, Nancy gets separated from Jack. Um, to make it to. Matthew's office and they kind of hold up there for a bit where they finally encounter the now definitely podified, um Dr. Kibner and Jack and it kind of really shows the ra- the range of both um, Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy is an actor here, where we have the the, the subtle shifts from, um, uh, the, from Dr. Kibner normally and Dr. Kibner as a pod person, and the very dramatic shifts from normal Jack to pod Jack, both of which are played effectively well, because this could very easily become I am robot, I have no emotion, from Jeff Goldblum, who, while well, he had act, certainly acted before this, had not necessarily done anything quite like this before. I'll admit having litter Nimoy on set for this probably helps, because it's definitely a situation where... Because is certainly a guy who's willing to help other, help out other actors. I can see him giving... If Jeff was running into problems with his performance, Nimoy giving some advice to kind of help him. No, no, here, here's a better way to do the emotionless kind of thing without coming off like a rope. Leonard Nimoy's Vulcan lessons. (laughs) Pretty much. So, what helps Jack Elizabeth get out of this is one of Elizabeth's co-workers takes speed. Oh my god. (laughs) He's popping speed at work. And you know that this is 70s, 70s, whereas nowadays, if so if somebody found out, oh hey, you've been ab- you've been ab- abusing prescription drugs at work, particularly a st- a super stimulant like meth or speed, you'd be fired immediately. But this is the '70s, so it's like whatever. The '60s weren't that long ago. We all took something, right? Oh God, it's... and like there's the casualness where they're like. How how many pills does uh your buddy take of speed? Oh, normally the uh, instructions on the bottle say j- just one, or it normally only takes just one. Let's take five. Yeah, just downing five. My first thought is, who wants heart palpitations? We do. <laughs> take five. My thoughts, your heart will explode.
1: Luckily, Kibner immediately administers a sedative. <laughs>
0: And, fortunately, also, he administers a sedative that doesn't have any unpleasant side effects with the uppers they just took. Yeah. Ah. Otherwise, we could have had... We could have found out what confusion looks like on the face of the pod people as they try to figure out why these two just suddenly dropped dead in in a very unpleasant fashion.
1: Uh yeah. <sighs> um, alternatively, maybe, you know, what's, you know, because the pod people are copying the composition of the people pretty well. So and w- at one point we see that um, a homeless guy and his dog are, you know, sleeping next to each other for warmth. So when that pod comes out, it's a dog with the guy's face on it.
0: Yeah, face, which is clear, pretty clearly a mask. Yeah, like, like a, a like a Halloween grade, ma- like Halloween store grade mask.
1: Well, it's the seventies, you know. This wasn't a big budget film. They they worked with. That's guy. true. So my question is, what what are they gonna? What about the people who have like hard drugs in their bodies? Trying to do when they fall asleep. I mean, yeah, like the perpetually high people,
0: <laughs> odd people. <laughs> this is true.
1: <laughs> there are so many questions this film raises that probably
0: it didn't mean to. Yeah, as a side note, the guitar, not the guitar, but the banjo leitmotif sort of thing they have for the homeless person because he's often seen picking on a banjo is provided by Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. So, um, just how San Francisco this was. Basically, the director had encountered Jerry Garcia. I presume he was a deadhead. Hey, Jerry, would you like to do some stuff for a movie? And Jerry basically went, sure, I've never done anything for a movie before. That wasn't a concert film for us. For my band. So, he contributed that. Um, anywho, on during their escape, uh, Matthew and Elizabeth encounter Nancy, this, who teaches them that the way to, to pass among the pod people safely is to not show any emotion, which fails when they see the um, man-faced dog, at which point, once again, we get more of the pod person scream and our protagonists flee into... Either... Into a red light district, which is not too dissimilar from that one shot of New York City that's used in every 70s exploitation movie. You know the one? Lots of very cheap grindhouse theaters. Strip shows. <laughs> including strip shows with barkers, which... I don't I mean, Maybe it's a, a local advertising ordinance thing, but... do have explanation, I live in the area of Portland, which has... Which is in the Guinness Book of World Records for most strip clubs of any city in the United States, if not the world. And nobody in Portland uses on-street barkers. For the strip club. Maybe maybe it's a sign ordinance thing. I don't know. It's an advertising thing. Anywho. They get in a cab to try and get away, but the um, cab is a pod person. The cab driver is a pod person. They make their way to the docks, and unfortunately for Matthew, Elizabeth eventually falls asleep while Matthew is heading off to check out music playing, which he thinks might be a safe way out in some place that hasn't been taken over by pod people. But no, it's just a radio at a freighter that's loading up pods where it's... Not sure why they're playing music, since they don't really listen to music. And we actually established earlier in the film that the pod people have basically shut down all the radio stations, pretty much, because they don't need to listen to music.
1: True, but there was that bit earlier on at the bathhouse, my bathhouse, uh, where Nancy, you know, goes on about how um, the uh,
0: music helps the plants grow. That's true. Yeah, okay, I I can go with that. So, Matthew comes back, discovers Elizabeth has been transformed. And basically at this point, Brooke Adams, um, as pod Elizabeth, we we learn that people come out of the transformation basically naked. Like you do. (laughs) Yeah. And it actually works fairly well here, um... Not just because Brooke Adams is attract uh, is attractive, but because they shoot these scenes very well due to play up the utter alienness of her behav of her actions. In particular, there's a bit where when um, Matthew and Elizabeth reach the docks earlier, they discover this warehouse where they're growing lots of pods, and Matthew decides to go in and destroy the place and cuts down the lighting and everything's on fire and soon to be blowing up. And we have this great shot Elizabeth still topless walking amongst the um burning racks of plants with basically no reaction until she looks up sees um Matthew and points and does the shriek and it's it's really effective and kind of chilling
1: yeah uh first time we really get an explanation for that Cry that will come up later.
0: I mean, we mean we, we've we've seen it before. We've even seen people um, do it before when pointing at our protagonist. But it's, I think it's probably its most effective here because it's not, now it's coming from a character who we know. Uh, I'll say this is probably the second most effective use of it in the film. This is true. The most effective is at the conclusion where it's the next day. Matthew, we think, has escaped. He appears to be going through some sort of semblance of his daily routine, appearing to pretend to be um, emotionless, until in the park he encounters Nancy, who also has been passing as a pod person, and she reacts and tries to get his attention, and then he gives the howl. And Nancy really freaks out. Uh,
1: Yes. Um, I'm not sure if this is true, but I did read that uh, for this bit, uh, they didn't tell uh, Veronica Cartwright, who plays Nancy, that uh, Donald Sutherland's character had been replaced. So when he points at her and does the shriek, she actually screams. What makes this hilarious to me, however, is the fact that this would happen to her again next year in Alien with uh, John Hurt's. Death in the chestburster scene.
0: (laughs) This is true. Um, Well, yeah, um, the story is confirmed. Uh, I was watching the documentary stuff and the audio commentary on the DVD release, and we basically get it from the director, from Donald Sutherland, and from Veronica Cartwright. that Yes, that's what happened. So we have basically confirmation from everyone involved. So it is definitely true, myth confirmed. so a few little useful production notes the composer of this movie is a guy named Danny Zetlin this is the only movie he's ever composed music for really Um, basically um, from the making of stuff what I gather is is that Danny Zetlin's like yeah I can't top this movie Uh, there's no way I can top my work on this movie he'd done jazz composing and that sort of stuff before but he didn't think he could do anything better than this and decided to quit while he was ahead
1: Okay, well, I gotta say, the music is great. Just fantastic.
0: Yeah. Additionally, um, much of the sound design, including the effects for the um, pod creatures and the howl, was done by Ben Burt, who is currently taking a break on production from this little movie which we haven't, which you probably haven't heard about that at the time of shooting was still kind of a troubled shoot and wasn't out yet called, called Star Wars. And basically they brought him in, uh, he did the sound design, and then he kind of went back to doing some Star Wars stuff, and then that movie actually ended up coming out before this one did. Star Wars, that is. Yeah. Which is odd,
1: because that one, because Star Wars had so much post-production work that needed
0: to be done and then redone, because the first time, it was crap. I believe this was during, the, I believe this movie was being shot while the post-production was being redone on Star Wars. Yeah. Well, like, at that period before they started doing redoing the effects work. Yeah. Or some of the effects stuff, because the, um... From what I gathered from the commentary, there was a lot of debate, um concern as far as Brad Burt was of whether this movie was actually going to come out, and so we needed to have something else to get a little bit of additional income or something like that. Is it Brad Bird or is it Ben Burt? Oh, Ben Burt. I'm sorry. I'm conf- I'm confusing Brad Bird and Ben Burt.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And for Sound Guy, Ben Burt is the one you want to get, because... He is fantastic and kind of totally over obsessive. He's the OCD kind of fantastic sound guy. Just like some of the things he went through to just get like get one tiny sound. Just. The man is
0: amazing and I cannot rave about him enough. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Ben, like, like Ben Burt's the kind of guy where he has a really good tape recorder with him in the trunk of his car at all times, and if he hears something really cool, and is it something that's repeatable, he is kind of going to go, hang on a sec, let me go to my car, I'll be right back, I want you to do that again. Yep. Even if he doesn't know what he's going to use it for now, he'll think of something down the road, and he wants to get a good recording of it now, so we can use it again later. aside from things discussed one of the things i really like about this film and it kind of shows how the how much how why this concept of this movie has lasted so long is how well it really adapts sort of the paranoid concepts of this movie of the 1950 version to the 70s the 1950 version very much a i realize this is an unintentional bad bad joke because the actor who played the lead was kevin His last name was mccarthy but the sort of mccarthyist anti-communist fear of anyone you know could become a communist at any time. Even your best friends you've known forever. Even your family members. Anybody and everyone. So so you gotta keep an eye out. You gotta watch, man. Infiltrators could be anywhere. Whereas this version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it's... We're now in the 70s and we've had We've had the Kennedy assassination and the various conspiracy theories related to that. We've had the Watergate hearings and everything related to that. We've had the secret bombings of Cambodia. We've had the disillusion with authority that's happened throughout the 60s combined with sort of the the, the crash at the end of the hippie movement where we thought we could have changed things in the 60s and changed the world and we really didn't. And disillusionment with that, along with we're sort of getting the rise of the yuppies of all of the former hippies who got money and now became or now are becoming the man. And so you now have this kind of you had you got the conspiracy conspiratorial distrust and fear from all the early seventies conspiratorial stuff, plus with the paranoia of basically, my friends are becoming, are are becoming super conservative. My, My hippie friends are becoming super conservative. In fact, there's a great line in the movie with, um, the character of Bunnell, who's talking to Elizabeth about her, her boyfriend, and what might be going on, and he's listing the things that it could be, and it's, it starts off with, oh, it could be an affair. It could be actually gay, and then leads to he's becoming a Republican. On the, so, on the one hand, he's kind of joking, he's trying to take the nerves off. On the other hand, if you're a, if you are kind of a hippie or hippie sympathizer, I can see that. That kind of the concern of me and my buddies, we're going to change the world and we're getting older and people's political views are perhaps changing in ways that we don't like or fear. So that's. I think that really this movie just. Its existence and how well it's regarded and how well it succeeds really shows the longevity of this concept as a concept.
1: Yeah, because. Well, short of everyone developing telepathy simultaneously, there's always going to be that sort of, you know, the ability for someone, for you to, you know, have a situation where someone, you learn something about someone that changes who they are in your point of view. So there was a lot of the sort of sense of, well, it was the 70s, bigger city, you know, sort of the super cities were sort of getting even bigger. And so there was a lot of that whole urban alienation going on where you didn't know the person who lived next to you. And this sort of expanded upon that when literally they're from another world. Or copy and replace someone. So, But yeah, just fantastic.
0: Sadly, this movie did not place in the brackets. I had thought it had, but apparently it hadn't. The original 1958 version did, and we'll probably get into that a little more later. It had an interesting run in the tournament. In terms of at the time, this movie did fairly well. It nominated for a bunch of awards. Um, Not necessarily the big ones like like the Oscar, but... Got a nomination from the Writers Guild for Best Adapted, Adapted um, Drama, nominated for Hugo for Best Dramatic Presentation, and the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films gave um, Philip Kaufman the award for Best Director and nominated it for Best Science Fiction Film, along with acting performances for Donald Su- acting nominations for Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, and Leonard Nimoy. A bunch of, along with a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, oh, that, that award question was the Saturn Awards, by the way. We have lots of critical ravings for it. Pauline Kael, who is kind of has a mixed bag for um, science fiction, uh, as far as you look at her review repertoire, uh, really liked this movie. Ebert, not so much. But the biggest thing with critics is critics being there on people, they don't always go in lockstep on things. Sometimes Pauline kale and Marjorie Ebert will agree, sometimes they won't. Um, I, ha- I don't have any box office information on this movie, unfortunately. Yeah... I mean, it's the 1970s. Some of this information is not necessarily accessible, which is unfortunate. Um, So, I would definitely say that if you're a fan of science fiction film or horror films, this is a movie that's definitely worth having in your uh, film library. Um, It does a lot without necessarily having to have really flashy effects on the science fiction front or using a lot of um gore effects or anything like that on the horror front or having super shocking imagery i mean some of it's there but it's a much more psychological horror film than a flashy gory horror film
1: yeah
0: yeah i mean there is definitely
1: some uh definitely some gore in there um when uh Matthew Benell breaks open his uh pod replacement. Definitely pretty bloody. Um few couple other scenes, but overall, uh yeah, pretty low on the gore ometer.
0: Yeah. I mean I think the reason that the, that that scene where Bunnell smashes his pod replacement is so is effective, is because there is so little gore in this film in general, that having, that the sudden ha- appearance of it makes such a big deal. Same, for example, with the nudity, or rather toplessness, because um, she's only shot, he's shot from the waist up, of um, Elizabeth, where this is a film with no nudity, no particularly risque content. All of a sudden, this character is topless, and she is acting in a way, in, in the pod person manner. Which triggers all our, this isn't acting right, this this, this person isn't acting right in, in instincts. Beyond from the fact that this character is acting differently from how they've previously been established over the course of the film. One last thing kind of worth mentioning um I guess is something I've observed about horror films and science fiction films and disaster films and invasion films is usually the Pacific Northwest is spared. Uh Independence Day we do not see um alien ships over uh the Coin Tower. There is no giant wave crashing over um the Ross Island Bridge or the Columbia Bridge in 2012 or anything like that I did kind of notice when they're giving the list of cities that they're sending people that they're sending pods and pod people to one of the cities they list in particular Eugene, Portland and Seattle as the uh, among the list of cities that are slated to be potified
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Most likely that's because we don't have uh, in the Pacific Northwest. There aren't really any of those major identifiable landmarks. Um, I think the only thing that really comes close is the Space Needle up in Seattle. Uh, But for the most part, there's nothing really emblematic of uh, Pacific Northwest cities. Also, um,
0: why would you want to take over Eugene? I mean... I don't know. Maybe they're planning to use... Maybe they're planning to spread pods through um, the University of Oregon Ducks football team schedule? I mean, at this point in history, they're more likely to meet to reach major bowl games with the ducks than they are with the beavers because we're at the um, we're in the beavers can't win anything stage of the uh, beavers existence. Ah, so all of it. Hey, they have occasionally reached bowl games, and they, there was that one year where the beavers utterly stomped Notre Dame. Uh, true, true, true. And
1: for all of my smack talk, I don't actually follow college football whatsoever, so I have no idea who's winning. Uh, to be fair, uh, yeah, co- neither do I. <laughs> college football is not my game. Uh, all I know is, yeah, I just have a uh, family who cares about them.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, pretty much. Uh,
1: affection by diffusion, I
0: suppose yeah so any final thoughts or a, i mean as far as the bit we've kind of slacked off, off on with the um part that's that's been that blaine stole from mission log and we're stealing from blaine with the messages morals and meanings we've kind of already discussed about that with the themes of urban alienation and paranoia with this um with this film um but other than that any other final thoughts about Um, the 1970s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Um, It's
1: definitely worth a watch at least once, um, but it is not a fast film, primarily because it does do its job of setting up everything ahead of time. It sets up everyone's routines so that you know when they've been replaced or you get your suspicions. Uh, It establishes a lot, so it's not going to be moving anywhere quickly. And if you want a thrill ride, not your kind of film. Uh, If you want more scary sort of um, more, well, not scary, but more shocky sort of thrillers, definitely not. But but if you want a good psychological film, psychological thriller to be specific, definitely check out the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
0: All right. And so, next time we will be taking a look at the at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, until next time, I'm Alex Case.
1: I'm David Stark.
0: And I'll leave you to shiver with anticip Hello, this is Alex Case. I wish to apologize in advance for some technical difficulties with the audio here. Um, We had some problems with audio submergence and that sort of other stuff. And unfortunately, we did not have enough time to fix this in order to get the episode out on time. We apologize for the inconvenience, however, we still hope you will enjoy the podcast. Thank you.